This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Walter Chang's Market, Post Office, and Video Rental. Walter Chang's Market. Settle for nothing less than perfection. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's subterranean monsters, sort of? Yes. On Pod Cemetery with 1990s Tremors and 2006's The Host. Normally, before we get into our movies, there's trivia. We need y'all to send us trivia so we can do trivia. We've burned through so many different sources, and there's pretty much only garbage left. If you have an idea of another segment we can do instead, as sort of a buffer in between movies, let us know. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are. But moving right along to our first movie of the episode, 1990s Tremors. Directed by Ron Underwood of City Slickers and Heart and Souls fame. Awesome. He also directed a bunch of episodes of Once Upon Time. Nice. With a story by S.S. Wilson, Brent Maddock, and Ron Underwood. Screenplay by S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock. Starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Finn Carter, Michael Gross, and Reba McIntyre. Kelsey, what is Tremors about? A town in the middle of nowhere is attacked by underground worms. That's about it, yep. <laughs> the movie is available with a subscription to Stars and DirecTV. You can rent it for $4 on most services and buy it for 13 to $15, but you can find it as low as $7 on AMC On Demand and $8 on Amazon. Should people watch Tremors? Yes. Yeah! It's a lot of fun. It is! It's a fun movie, I think, is a great descriptor. It's a little bit silly. It's a little bit lighthearted, but the monsters are still an interesting threat. So, yeah, you should watch it. Where do you think it stacks up in the pantheon of monster movies? I mean, monster movies are rarely scary, in my opinion. Uh-huh. And so it didn't bother me that they weren't scary. And I I think that if you're looking at on the fun scale, I think this is definitely one that you should see because it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. And you know what? I will say that the monsters are great practical effects. Like they're all practical. It's 1990. They're not doing any CG stuff yet on movies like Tremors. Mm. Uh, but there's some cool practical stuff going on and fun ways to depict the monsters moving around, some which are reminiscent of Children of the Corn, but yes. we will get there. Yes, and I'd like to point out that uh, the whole silent thing is in this. Everybody made such a big deal over the monster movie. A Quiet Place? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's an element. <laughs> uh, anyway, you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1990s. Tremors. 
Welcome to perfection, where there's nothing new under the sun. We plan ahead. That way we don't do anything right now. But under the ground. What the hell are they? It's big. These creatures are absolutely unprecedented. It's mean. It's ugly. Stinks too. And worst of all, it's hungry. Kevin Bacon. Tremors. Rated PG-13 may be inappropriate for children under 13. Starts tomorrow at theaters everywhere. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Tremors begin? We meet our, I guess, main two characters? Sure. Yeah. I, I Yeah, they're absolutely the main two characters. It's Val, Valentine McKee, played by Kevin Bacon, <laughs> and Earl, Earl Bass, played by Fred Ward. And what do we know Fred Ward from? Oh, he's in big business. That's where you know him from? Mm-hmm. I can't see him without thinking of stupid comedies like uh, Naked Gun and Joe Dirt and Corky Romano and those sorts of movies. For whatever reason, that's what I think of when I think of him. Well, that's in that wheelhouse. Yeah. We watched Big Business together not that long ago, right? A couple I, years ago, maybe? I think so. Just I love a, it. A weird movie to be thinking about. <laughs> it's a great movie. So, yes, we meet Val and Earl. And Earl is pissing near a cliff. A cliff that will be very important later on in the movie. They kind of just are showing us what their lives are like. But there's it's a funny moment because they're going to get cigarettes. I think it's Ward is having trouble getting it out of the, the carton. Yeah. Uh-huh. And both of them are kind of laughing about it. Like, you they, could, like They do such a good job with the little character interactions between Earl and Val. Like, there's a lot of little things, some of them more obvious than others. But it's just, it's interesting getting to know these two characters through their sort of micro-interactions. Yes. But they are hired hands, I guess you want to call them. That's what they like to think of themselves as. But they're like handyman, they're do-it-all sort of folks. Anything anybody needs, they'll take care of it. But they hate their job. Yes. Uh, they have to go and do garbage today, and they hate it. Yeah. Somebody is out out there to do prospecting i don't or studying the earth i don't know what she's out there for yeah she's Checking studying like earthquakes work? and seismic activity i'm rhonda rhonda lebeck i'm up here for the semester yeah geography geology yeah well actually seismology earthquakes well i'm supposed to monitor these seismographs well you know they measure vibrations vibrations in the ground yeah. Well, I've been getting some really strange readings. I mean, the school's had these machines up here for three years, and we've never recorded anything like this. I don't know anything about this stuff. But she's there, and he's like, oh, it's a girl. And so Valentine is very excited, and he's just, he Describing hopes that she's... Describing his perfect woman. Yeah, he hopes that she's this blonde, big-breasted woman. <laughs> Long blonde hair, big green eyes, world-class breasts, ass that won't quit, and legs that go all the way up. And she is not. She's a serious nerd. Uh, She's got the hat. She's got the sunblock on the nose. Yeah, this is Finn Carter playing Rhonda LeBeck. 
and he is very disappointed. But she's Ward, perfectly attractive and nice and everything, but she's just not the supermodel that Val wanted. And she's wearing like dorky clothes uh-huh. and stuff. And uh, Ward is being very gentlemanly to yes. her, but Val is not interested. He was really upset when she wasn't big breasted, blonde, blue eyed, all the bees. <laughs> We also meet Melvin the Punk, who I know oh from my God. who I know from The Wonder Years as Eddie Panetti. Yeah, I guess I guess that makes a lot of sense. Um he's one of the buddies in Can't Hardly Wait, one of uh, Seth Green's buddies. Is he? Yeah, he's in his crew. It's really funny. Yeah. He had a bit role in Pearl Harbor. <laughs> but he is in some Tremors sequels as well. At least number three. I don't know whose kid he's supposed to be. So his his parents are away on vacation or business or something. Mm. He, he isn't the child of anyone we actually see in the movie. So he's just spending the summer by himself? Or the current time frame, which is only like two days or something, that we actually see this stuff happen. And then I wrote, I don't know what this means. They even showed that she noticed it. But it's the, still there? The Oh, stuff. yeah. Okay, so she, she notices that she has the suntan block on her nose, but she doesn't do anything about it? Well, it's still necessary. <laughs> I guess. We get to see the two guys, Valenti- Valentine and what is his name? Earl. Earl. Earl and Valentine. And they have a cooler made out of a toilet. So gross. <laughs> And they decide that they want to leave the town of perfection. And so they start to drive away. They get stopped by a local woman who says, I will give you a month's work to make my shed. I'll throw in lunches and beer. Mm -hmm. And they're very proud of themselves that they're able to turn that offer down. Yep. But then they find somebody. Yeah. They're driving away and they see somebody up on top of a telephone pole. And they're like, well, that's not good. So they pull over. It's a power you know, one of those giant structures that has the the heavy-duty power lines across them, Yeah, Yeah. They do rock, paper, scissors to see who has to do it. And every time they do rock, paper, scissors, Kevin Bacon always does paper, and Ward always does scissors, right? Mm -hmm. And that will become important because later... They will specifically try to lose. Uh-huh. So they change what they do. Uh-huh. So, like, I get that the joke is that they secretly always knew who would win. So I guess Kevin Bacon always did it as, like, a sacrifice so that Ward wouldn't have to do it? I don't think that that's the case. Oh. I think it is interesting that they change it up. I, th- I think they were both trying to lose that yeah. time. So they did the opposite of what they would normally do. So that time they're both trying to sacrifice themselves at the end. They both, they always think that they're going to win. It's just Val's not as smart as Earl is. And (laughs) Earl recognizes that Val does the same thing every single time. But Val's legitimately trying to win every time and he just doesn't realize it. So he's trying to lose the second time around. So he switches it up. But so does Earl. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. But so Val... Climbs up there and the guy, they know the guy and he died of thirst, they find out. Yeah, they take him to a doctor who's, I guess, on vacation here. They brought a trailer out or they just moved there. Yeah, they're building their dream house. Yeah. uh And the doctor says, yeah, no, he died of dehydration. 
like three to four days ago. Yeah. And it's like, or, or, or no, it would take three it would to four take days. Three to, to four yeah. days. Uh-huh. And it's like, why would he sit up there for three to four days, just uh-huh. dying of dehydration? What's going on? And then they, I think they keep driving, and they come across Fred's sheep farm. But there's a bunch of dead sheep, and there's no Fred. Uh huh. And they say, "This is weird, real weird, fucking weird." <laughs> I'm so mad that I don't know what to do. <laughs> this is weird. This is real weird. Very weird. Fucking weird. I'm so mad that I don't know what to do. And they, you know, what the hell is going on? And they get told that they need to go or they decide that they need to go to Bixby and get the police, right? That's the next biggest town over. Oh, yeah. A bunch of people. They tell a bunch of people about this and they say, well, you got to get to Bixby and you got to get you got to get the police. And they say, step on it. And Valentine says, consider it stepped on. (laughs) But they can't. There's like rocks in the road. There's like all this buildup. And Ward even says, is there some kind of higher power here? Is there some higher force at work here? (laughs) I mean, are we asking too much of life? Well, there are the people who are working on the road, like the highway folks who are working on the road. And they tell him to get out of here. There's some murderer on the loose. Yes, but I think that the stuff on the road is from the, the worms. Yeah. But so he ha- he's forced to turn around and his car gets stuck. And Ward is like, you got your car hung up. And Val's like, no, I don't. And he keeps doing it. And he's like, you can't keep trying to, you're going to burn out your clutch. You could break an axle like that. But they end up getting the car out and they find out that he was not hung up. Something had was, grabbed onto them. Had, grabbed onto it to their rear axle yeah and they and they find like a dead looks like a python or something that was latched on to their rear axle and had been ripped in half or something yeah they they surmise a snake an eel a slug what could it be yeah and at first they're afraid of it but it's dead and it also smells really bad apparently yeah but there's this guy Walter Chang who runs the local i guess restaurant it's like a shop, like a store, plus they serve food there. That's Victor Wong. He's in Big Trouble in Little China. But if I'm honest, when I see him, all I can think of is the grandpa from Three Ninjas. <laughs> yeah, I probably know him from the Joy Luck Club. But so he asks to to buy it from Valentine for $5, and Valentine's like, $20. And he says 10 and Ward says 15 He goes, fine. And then you find out the reason he wanted to buy it was because he wanted to sell pictures with it yeah. for $5 each. And they beat themselves up for not thinking of that themselves. Yes, but that doesn't really matter because that guy's going to die. Oh. <laughs> yes. But so, yeah, that doctor and his wife are building their dream home, and that night, their generator goes out. Okay, so this, for whatever reason, is from when I first watched this movie when I was a kid. So it came out, I was about seven or so, and I didn't see it till it was on TV or VHS, so I was probably nine or ten, and... For whatever reason, this scene with the station wagon is what stuck in my brain. And whenever I thought of Tremors, that's what I thought of. I thought of that and I thought of the ending. That's all I would think of. And so, I mean, it's nice to have seen it again recently and now I can picture the whole movie in my head. But when I think of Tremors normally, that this is the scene. 
So they go to check on their generator, and it's gone. Uh-huh. It has vanished, and then it gets spat out. Uh-huh. They're like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. What the fuck is that? And so they run into their car, but they don't have the keys, so they can't go anywhere. But somehow the radio works? Yeah, there are cars that work like that. Back then? I think especially back then. Oh, okay. You just turn your radio on and it's going to be draining your battery. The doctor gets grabbed by the leg and gets pulled under. And there's this very frantic scene where his wife is trying to save him and giving him the planks of wood that they're using to build their dream home together. So he so he can hold on to them instead of falling into this pit and being swallowed up by the earth. And they snap and he falls in and she's panicking and trying to grab his hands. And she just can't save him. And then the thing that lashed out and grabbed him... One of these eel snake things tries to get her. And so, yeah, she runs into the car. She tries to start it, but she can't. The radio is playing and it gets swallowed up entirely into the ground. And with her in it. And it's a terrifying moment and terrifying thought. <laughs> could you imagine? Yes, if something was that big that it could swallow your car with you in it. Yes. Yeah, terrifying. well, I mean, let's be honest. The actual... Tremors themselves, the graboids, as they're later called, are not big enough to swallow an entire station wagon. Well, yeah, that's why the station wagon is still there yeah. the next day. Uh-huh. But it's still But scary. they do pull it under and try to. Yes. Yeah. But if she was in it... Yeah, theoretically, she could still be alive in there. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it wound its way in and smashed the windows and pulled her out through one of the windows. Ah, oh, God! But so now they're really freaking out. And it's just like, well, we're in this, we're in geographic isolation. We all picked this place on purpose. This is what Michael Gross is saying, because he's like a a prepper, basically. You know, he's one of those guys who he lives out there be- specifically because no one's out there. Mm-hmm. And he's hoarding all the things he needs to survive an apocalypse, to fight the government, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they basically live in a valley between two mountain ranges, and on one end is a canyon. And so there's only one way out. And the graboids, as they're as they'll later be called, are in between them and the way out of this valley. So they decide we gotta send guys on horses. Yeah. That'll be the best way to do it. Because it's not like permanently on the ground, they're kicking and stuff. So Well, but also there's all that stuff blocking the road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they need horses to not go on the road. And when they're getting ready to go, Walter Chang gives them supplies and he says, hey, hey, here's some Swiss cheese and bullets. Yeah, it's just an odd combination. I thought that was very odd. <laughs> hey, Earl, here's some Swiss cheese and some bullets. Uh, thanks, Walter. I was like, I think there's a joke there, but I don't get it. It's also weird that he's just giving them generically bullets because they'll have a lot of conversations about what type of gun they get. Yes. Because they'll be fighting over which gun they get and then... I can't remember who it is, gets the shitty gun. I think and then, and then Reba McIntyre's like, oh, you can't, here, take mine. And then he ends up getting the better one. <laughs> even though he lost at Rock, Paper, Scissors. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, Reba McIntyre is Michael Gross's wife and is very much like him. They will be basically the main characters for the next couple installments of this franchise. Really? Yes. Huh. They're the ones that stuck around and did more of them. Or at the very least, Michael Gross. 
But then we get a horse riding scene and we get some very odd music to it. You'll have to show the scene. Yeah, so the music is really weird. You'll notice that it's switching back and forth. They did an entire score for it and it was very Western feeling. And then they brought in somebody else at the last minute to rescore the movie. That's Robert Folk. And so he has the more like adventurous stuff, like the stuff you'll get when they're actually fighting the Graboids and the successful quest music that they get when they when when they are victorious like that's really super cheesy mm. that's his that's the second one but Ernest Troost he's the one who did the original score and it is very western feeling well it stuck out like a sore thumb in this scene because it was just like it slowed down a lot and it's like uh we're at a part where this is fast moving yeah but i think the feeling he was trying to evoke is one of hey we're out in the middle of nowhere we're a slow folk even though we're riding on horses really fast yeah uh-huh and they get to the doctor's camp and they find that he's dead and they find the car under the ground which makes them realize well how do they find the car under the ground they see the light they, they see the headlight. They hear the radio. Oh, they hear the radio? Yeah, and it's playing Drop Kick Me Jesus through <laughs> the goalposts of life. <laughs> but so that's what makes them realize that's why we haven't been seeing them. They're underground. This is when we finally see a Graboid. And we see that he has three tiny heads inside his big head. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Well, they're all a part of him. They're not they're not independent thinkers. Okay. So it's just a bunch of different mouths, basically? Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. Uh, but so they start to tear down, like, posts, and it's coming after them, and you can see the big hump coming after them, just like you can in Children of the Corn. And without even meaning to, they kill it. They're running, and he runs to, like, a ravine area, and jumps down, and the thing just keeps coming and rams itself oh, into concrete. yeah, into concrete, yeah. And kills itself. And uh, Val is very excited. Fuck you! <laughs> we killed it. Fuck you! <laughs> but immediately after, they're like, oh my god, does it smell like that because it's dead? And the truth is, no, they actually smell worse when they're alive, uh, as you'll find out. And because they're out in the middle of the desert, this is where that lady is doing that seismic stuff. Uh -huh. And she happens to be there, happens to see it, and she explains, well, it doesn't have any eyes, so it must be subterranean. Yeah. Even though it has tentacles, which seems odd. Yeah. How would that help you underground? I mean, a lot of what this monster is doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay. How it moves through the ground doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay. Like, it would have to it would have to displace a lot of Earth, which it's not doing a lot of the time, or it would be leaving, a, like, giant gaps where its body passes through, which would cause collapsing ground. You'd have all sorts of ground collapsing beneath you. Now, it will use it to great effect later on in the movie, so it's aware, the movie is aware of the fact that that would likely happen, but it's, you know, it just uses it conveniently, you know? Mm. But so, based on her scientific findings, she surmises that there are three more of them. 
And they go, well, we'll take your word for it. They, of course, figure out, okay, well, if we get up on the rocks, then they can't get to us. Which, again, does that make sense if they have tentacles? Should well, they allow only reach, them to- they, they only reach so far. Hmm. But they're there. They know they're on those rocks. Every motion they make, they can sense it. They just can't get to them. Yes. They start to guess what it could be. And they're just like, maybe mutation caused by radiation. Uh, Maybe the government built it for the Russians. Maybe they're billions of years old. Maybe they're from outer space. But so they come through all these ideas. And the point is is that you never find out. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you do in other movies. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. But they keep asking the the lady what she thinks, and she's like, what do I look like, an expert? Yeah, I've never seen these things ever. It's Walter Chang who ends up naming them Graboids. Yes. Him and they and... all get frustrated that he keeps asking, what should we call them? Yeah. That's what I like. Graboid! That's it, Graboid! Jesus, Walter. But at this point, when they're up on the rock, Ward goes, that means we're stuck! That pisses me off! And they sleep the whole night there. Until the next morning, they conveniently use these pipes that are there, or poles. these poles that just happen to randomly be there. To pole vault their way along the rocks to get back to her truck or something. Her truck. truck, And you forgot to mention that when they woke up, they uh, she was cuddling with Kevin Bacon. He didn't like that. Well, he was uncomfortable by it. Yes. The pole vaulting scene is very silly. Uh, and also, like, it felt like the car was in the opposite direction of yeah. where they mm-hmm. headed. But yeah, they pull vault all the way into the bed of the truck. She dives in through the window. Yes. Into and the cab. And she's driving with her hands. Yeah. How on earth is she steering? It doesn't make any she's sense. She's not. She's doing a really shitty job, which is why she asked for their help. When they get back to the store... Somebody says, someone is bound to come for us. And they're like, yeah, that's how this works. Yeah. This random town that nobody cares about. And they're all talking about all these things. I think that's when Walter Chang names them. But this is when Val says, wake up, people. We have got to get out of here. We are a buffet for these animals. What he says is, this valley's just one long smorgasbord. (laughs) They're under the ground! Now, this valley is just one long smorgasbord. They're under the goddamn ground. <laughs> tremors. <laughs> tremors. That is from a Logitech Google commercial that Kevin Bacon was in playing Kevin Bacon's biggest fan. It's great. And it's all we think of whenever we think of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, <laughs> might have even mentioned it when we did Stir of Echoes. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> I think we did. I do a Kevin Bacon impression. This valley's just one long smorgasbord. They're under the ground. It's tremors. There's a scary moment where you think the little girl from Jurassic Park is going to get eaten. You think. But she doesn't. Because she's pogo sticking. Yes. <laughs> with headphones on. Yes. So Val has to run out and tackle her to the ground so she stopped making noise. Because they're all trying not to move so they won't attract attention. But so they grab the pogo stick and they spit that out. Yeah. And this is when Walter Chang dies. The soda fridge causes him to die. Does he get crushed by well, it? Well, it starts. It, the, it. it, you know, it, it, it revs back up to keep the soda cool and it makes lots of noise and they're trying to shut it up and that's when it bursts through the, the floor of his shop and it grabs him. But they all take this as their cue to get on 
the roof of the building. Has the moment where she takes off her pants already happened or is that later? I think that's later. But when they get up on the roof at one point, he like, I think Val asks her, are you okay? And she just gives him a thumbs up. And it's uh-huh. very cheesy. There's a lot of cheesy moments in this movie, but they're great. It makes it so funny and fun. Yeah. This whole time they're also conversing via radio with Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre. Well, before that happens, these two are downstairs and they're like, hmm, I wonder why everybody's up on the roof. Yeah, they're just looking out their window. They're all on the roof. That's Can't weird. imagine why they do that. Yeah. And they're making all this noise prepping, getting all their guns and their ammo and all of that stuff. But they keep telling them over the walkie talkie because, yeah, they tell them. What are, they ask them, what are you doing? And they say, you got to get up on the roof. These things are after us. And they go for their guns. And they keep telling them they're under the ground. It's like, what do you not understand uh-huh. about the fact that they are under the ground? So what you're saying is their characters are obstinate. I guess. But their guns are practically worthless, and then they're not. It's weird. They do, like, nothing for well, a really they, long time. Yeah, but they use things like an elephant gun and stuff like that with giant cartridges or bullets. And, yeah, they lay this thing to waste. Because it it bursts in through the side of their basement shelter area. Yeah, and it comes in the side and they just open up on it uh, in its mouth where it's most sensitive. And they tell him, you know, oh, we, we killed it, we killed it. And they tell him, okay, but there's two more of them, so you got to get up on the roof. Yeah, this is a thing that happened. Apparently, they didn't want an R rating. So after the fact, they dubbed over a lot of the language. So that's why when Michael Gross calls him back, calls back to Kevin Bacon, he's like, we killed the mother humper. He says motherfucker, but they edited it. And that's in the theatrical version. So it's not like it's edited for television. They just decided they didn't want an R rating when they could pull off a PG or a PG-13. I can't remember which one this is. I did notice the mother humper. And that's when Kevin Bacon says, yeah, well, there's two more mother humpers. We killed it. You got that? We killed that mother humper. Come back. <laughs> Uh, roger that, Bert, and, uh, congratulations. Be advised, however, there are two more, repeat, two more Mother Humpers. Melvin ends up, like, getting really excited, and he's like, way to go, dudes! And the girl goes, yes! It's so cheesy. Bert got one! He killed one! Way to go, dudes! Right! (laughs) Yes! Yes! But they do eventually get on the roof... The two of them start building out homemade pipe bombs by sawing off all the PVC pipe they have sticking out of their roof and then filling it with all this, all these gunpowders and other such things where they just have all this stuff on their roof. <laughs> yes. I know the idea is that they're preppers, but if they're sawing off the PVC pipe on their roof, it's obvious that they didn't prep for this. But they still have all the materials ready at hand on their roof. But whatever. Like I said earlier, it is a fun movie. You're not supposed to take it too seriously. Yes. But they also notice that the worms seem to be making a plan. They don't know what it is yet, but they're like, something is going on. They're still there. Mm-hmm. Um, Finn Carter, Rhonda, she ends up like turning on the water on the water tower that she's on. And as it hits the ground, they appear... So she knows they're still there. But yeah, they're they're thinking. And so what they start doing is they start burrowing underneath 
Walter's shop harming its foundation until the whole thing starts collapsing in on itself. And it forces them to start coming up with a plan because they cannot stay on the roof of this building. They're thinking, well, maybe we can get a bulldozer to to take us there. But they say that they can't all fit on it, but then they do. Yeah, well, because it doesn't have what happens is. So first of all, it ha- a bulldozer is really, really heavy, so it'll be hard to flip. Uh, it doesn't have tires, so they don't need to worry about flats. It has treads so it can cover uneven ground. But it only has a small cabin that you can only fit like three people in it. So they hook it up to this truck. That makes more sense. It's like an open bed, you know, for a big rig hauling a bunch of materials. They attach that to the bulldozer and they put all the people in that. So they start driving around all the places, getting people in. And then they make their way to Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre. But something happens. This is when Bacon loses on purpose. Yeah, you got to run out there to get the bulldozer in the first place. But he does, and he goes and gets it. And I think she spills water again to get the attention of the worm so it doesn't go after Bacon. Well, Ward loses and Bacon runs anyway. Yes, they both lose. Yeah. And yeah, Bacon goes out anyway. And yeah, they need to distract him by making lots of noise. Maybe that's when she does the water thing. I don't remember. But they need to distract the worms, the graboids, because he's running out there and he has to stand perfectly still and one of the tongue things will start flicking around his feet and he has to like lift his foot up and then put it back down to stabilize. And when it comes back, he lifts it up again and it's like, it knows he's there, but it can't quite find him. Mm-hmm. And he has to pretend like he's not actually there. And so they distract him somehow. And I can't remember exactly how, but that allows him to run the rest of the way. But yeah, so they all end up getting on there and that Reba McIntyre and her husband gross are giving out, guns to everybody they uh-huh. even give one to melvin yep except that melvin tries to use it it doesn't work he calls him out on it and he's like i'm not giving a gun to you i wouldn't give you a real gun if this was world war three but it got you a uh, moving didn't it exactly <laughs> gave you the confidence you needed hey give me a gun i'll take one i wouldn't give you a gun if it was world war three you asshole there's no bullets in this gun got you moving didn't it what have the worms been doing? They've been digging underneath the bulldozer now. And just like they did with the building, destroying the ground underneath it. And so it caves in and it sinks in. And now they can't use it anymore because it's all flipped over and they all fall out. So they run to the nearest rock and they're like, well, shit, now we're stuck on rocks again. So it's last stand time and they need to get rid of these things. There's two more left. I think there's only one left. They managed to get rid of one of them by fishing with some of the pipe bombs. Yes. But the second one, yeah, but the second one doesn't fall for that. It spits it back out at them uh, and they need to all run away from this pipe bomb. Not only did it spit it back out, but it also got the rest of their ammo. Yeah. So they are fucked at this point until as they're out there, Kevin Bacon gets an idea and he I'm just gonna goes go for running. It. Yeah. Go for what? <laughs> <laughs> he just goes running. I've got a goddamn plan. <laughs> I got a goddamn plan. Because that's the whole time Earl's talking about how you got to have a plan. A man has to have a plan, you know, about what you want to do with your life, about <laughs> what's coming next, all of that. And so this is Val saying, I've made a plan. <laughs> and he's really excited about this. <laughs> what is his plan? His plan is to just keep running and get it to follow him. 
and as he runs out towards the canyon edge and dives to the side just in time before it knows what's happening and it just comes flying out of the canyon wall. Can you fly, sucker? He said fucker there, too. That's another (laughs) time. Because they comment on it potentially being able to fly. I think Rhonda at one point asks if it can fly or whatever. And yeah, can you fly, fucker? But he says sucker. Can you fly, you sucker? Can you fly? And it smashes to the ground below and is destroyed. And the movie pretty quickly ends after that. Well, not before Kevin Bacon gets to kiss the girl. Yes, uh uh-huh. That had to happen. He's grown. He's made a plan, and he finds Rhonda attractive. He's a man now. (laughs) Uh, We didn't mention there was a scene where Rhonda has to take her pants off because it's wrapped around her and some fencing. So she has to take her shoes and her pants off really quickly, and then she has to run along the front deck in front of Howard's shop, and it's all getting chewed up and thrown up as it's going behind her as she's running. The scene is also very recognizable. It's almost tropey at this point. Probably the most famous version of this would be eight years later for 1998's Godzilla, mm. where the man's fishing out on the pier, and then it looks like a tidal wave is happening, and oh, it's really Godzilla destroying the pier as he's running away. Mm-hmm. It's a much grander scale of what we see here. I mean, that's about it. A bunch of people die, but a bunch of people still live. Obviously, Val and Earl... Reba McIntyre and Michael Gross, who are Heather and Burt Gummer. Melvin lives. The lady and the girl from Jurassic Park live. Yeah, they live. Uh, Mindy and Nancy, I want to say, is her mom. I might be wrong. That's, uh, that's about it. That's where the movie ends. What do you think Kelsey Tremors has on Rotten Tomatoes? I guess it's relatively high. I'm going to say 78 86. Wow. An affectionate throwback to 1950s creature features, Tremors reinvigorates its genre tropes with a finely balanced combination of horror and humor. A Metacritic of 65, so while everyone likes the movie, they don't like it a whole lot. (laughs) It's good. And it has a B-minus cinema score. Do you think it is overrated or underrated just slightly over i'm gonna give it an 85 i think it is a solid b 85 is good i think you know i think i'll give it an 85 as well it is a solid b movie not in the traditional sense of no but Um, it is a lot of fun yeah it's a very silly you're not gonna be terrified it's not a straight up comedy it's kind of just a sort of feel-good monster movie which is odd considering some people you really like end up dying Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a low commitment sort of horror movie yes and it does not take itself seriously and it does not want you to take it seriously yes Uh uh-huh it's just supposed to be something that you could watch on television it really from what i remember it didn't do well in theaters but it was huge on tv it was always on tv that's where I saw it the first time. That's where I saw it for the first time. Yeah, so, like, it was one of those sorts of movies that you could just, you know, watch on a Sunday afternoon with the family. It's that sort of horror movie. They took all the fucks out of it. <laughs> Although I think they still left one in. I think there's, yeah, I think there's a couple. There might be two, yeah. Which they've since modified the rules, and two will get you a straight R, Unless you get some sort of special dispensation like the, like the Martian did. Yeah. But they both need to be non-sexual fucks. <laughs> which is what it was in the Martian. 
Anyway, that is Tremors, which ends, by the way, on a Reba McIntyre song, Why Not Tonight? <laughs> so baby, why not tonight? This could be the start of something right Hey, we can take it easy We can take it slow We can take it anywhere That you'd like to go So baby, why not tonight? <laughs> Which was from her 86 album, What Am I Gonna Do About You? Awesome. Her 12th studio album. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to our next movie, The Host, from 2006, directed by Bong Joon-ho, uh, who also wrote and directed Memories of Murder. Not Memoir Not of a Memoir Murderer. of a Murderer, which is what we, we saw here on the show. That's a sort of comedy thriller. Not uh, Memoir of a Murderer. Memories of Murder. Memories of Murder. <laughs> it's the famous one, and it's the one that is sort of a comedy thriller about a bunch of idiot detectives solving a murder. He also did Snowpiercer, which Kelsey did not like, and so thus I never got to see. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that I want to watch, and so whenever I have like an opportunity to watch something without Kelsey, it's not exactly on the top of my list. <laughs> but I know, I, I know it's something that I would enjoy from... Friends who have seen it and really like it. Uh, he also, of course, did Parasite, which he most recently won the Oscar for. With a screenplay by Bong Joon-ho as well. I would like to say that it shows. This, Same guy who did Parasite. This, oh, yeah. There's a lot of social commentary in everything he does. He also did Okja or Okja, the, the Netflix movie about. Which we never watched. About eating animals. <laughs> Yep. So, yes, he is all about social commentary, and there's tons of social commentary in here. And unfortunately, some of which goes right over our head because a lot of it is really specific to South Korea. Yeah, a lot of it. I was like, I know that's got to mean something. Uh -huh. I don't know what it means. <laughs> but it had that kind of quirky weirdness that Parasite had. And, you know, I think I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed Parasite. And I like both. I think Parasite was a much better made movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they're very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate both of them. Well, there's one reason in particular that they're similar that I'll get to in a second. But both of them are very... Oh, because it's the same actor. Yes. Uh -huh. But both of them are... It's also just kind of off-putting because it's just kind of like... I don't like any of these people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that, you know, he has a lot of fuck-ups in his movie. You know, that's kind of his bread and butter. Is I mean, that's why he tries to make movies about, like, real people with faults. The, you know, South Korean underclass is, like, his bread and butter, as I say. Uh, but anyway, screenplay by Bong Joon-ho, also Won Jun ha and Chul Hyun-baek. Starring Kong Ho Sung, uh, who is in all of the Bong Joon-ho movies I mentioned earlier, as well as Thirst, which we saw a long time ago. That's the Korean vampire movie about the doctor. That was a weird movie, too. Uh, and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Lady Vengeance, actually, which are... The two we didn't see. Yes, the... No, wait, didn't we see... I, well, I've one? seen... I've seen both of these once. Oh. A long time ago. I think I saw one of them once, but it was just, it was, I think I saw Lady Vengeance, and I was like. Yeah. 
No, so thank that's the you. third one. No, thank you. In the sort of old boy trilogy, sympathy for Mister Vengeance comes before, and Lady Vengeance comes after. I think old boy is my limit. I really love old boy. Old boy is so, so fantastic. Good. But then I saw Lady Vengeance, and I was like, I. I've seen Old Boy a bunch. I I've can't only seen do those. This. <laughs> I don't think I saw all of Lady Vengeance. My, I think might be part of the problem, and uh, also starring Byun Hee Bong, Park Hae Il. Bay Duna and Ko Asung. Uh, I am really, really sorry for what I'm sure is the absolute annihilation of the pronunciation of these Korean names. If you are a Korean audience member, please accept my apologies. <laughs> I'm trying my best for, for being a horrible Westerner who has n- never heard these names out loud practically at all. So I appreciate your consideration. Uh, what is the host about, Kelsey? Apparently a real thing that happened. Yes. That I cannot wrap my mind around. Yes. American troops poured a ton of formaldehyde into the Han River, which causes... I mean, that that part happened in real life. And then in the movie, that causes these creatures to... These this- creatures to... Cr- this one creature in particular. One creature to exist that will go after humans and one family's particular struggle against it. And if that sounds a lot like the Bay, it's because it is. Yes. Very similar. Yes. This and just, of course, the Bay came after this. And the Bay is is a completely different format of a movie. It's yes. a sort of, uh, you know. But isn't it also based on some real shit that went down? Yes. Well, real polluted waters. Yeah. Uh-huh. God, people, can we stop polluting the earth? Yeah, right. Jesus Christ. So this really did happen. In 2000, there was a military contractor for the U.S. So he was actually a civilian, but he was working on a military base in South Korea next to the Han River and either was instructed to or instructed or a combination of both his subordinates who were Korean to dump all these chemicals into the river. And this was specifically formaldehyde. And they're like, um, what? And they were forced to do it. And then they told their own government. And then South Korea was like, um, that's fucked. We're going to put him on trial. And the U.S. government, the military was like, you're absolutely not trying an American citizen who was on U.S. military soil. That's not going to happen. I don't care what he did. And they tried him in absentia eventually they were able to actually try him and he was present. And I think he got like his sentence was commuted in some way. It was like six months or two years or something like that. But yeah, it was like a huge deal in South Korea at the time, you know, and it's symbolic of the U S military and their corrupting force around the world. That's all they have to say about America. The rest of it is all about Korea yeah. And they're fucked up. Well, they're they're American too. scientists too. There's that one American scientist in there who's like, uh, you didn't know, you know, this thing, which will be oh, a reveal that happens right. later. Yeah. That's yeah. a whole weird side story that I don't quite get. I'm like, I don't understand why that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was it's interesting. This is what I'm talking about when I say that there's some social commentary happening that I'm not hundred percent on what I think it's actually supposed to represent. But yeah, we'll get into that a little bit later. It was two years of probation 
and they suspended an actual six month jail sentence. That was what it was. So when I said six months or two years, it was both. <laughs> There's a New York Times article about it that I'll share on Twitter if you're following us on Twitter. But yeah, entirely a real thing. And Bong Joon Ho was like, what if it created a monster? You know? I mean, that's basically the bay. Well, it's also basically Godzilla. The idea of oh. America dropping the bomb causing irradiated land and water, which created Godzilla, but it's at a much smaller, more intimate scale in this movie and specifically Korea. But you notice how the cause of both of these things is a, a U.S. military that lacked compassion. Yes. Now, the movie is available with ads on Canopy. With a subscription to Hulu or Hoopla, you can rent it for $4 on most services and buy it for 13 Should people watch The Host? I'd say yes. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. The CGI aged real poorly. It's 2006. After this, and, and before this too, but it became much more common after this for Korean movies to get much larger budgets. This was an absolutely gigantic movie in South Korea. It was huge. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about just how big it was. But yeah, a really, really big deal. And so after it, Korea started to have much more of a presence in international cinema, which is also one of the contributing factors for Parasite winning the Academy Award. But yeah, so this is a really important movie. I, I would I would recommend you watch it. Uh, even if you don't like foreign films, I think it's incredibly watchable. It might be a little bit confusing, though, if you're not used to subtitles throughout the whole thing. I will say this, though. Specifically, if you have seen Parasite and you didn't like it, I don't think you'd like this. I can understand why you might say that. There are a bunch of people that you're like, I mean, I like you and I'm rooting for you, but could you stop doing Right, things? could you stop doing <laughs> shitty things? Or even if it's just like small things, like the brother is an alcoholic. I, I don't want to diminish the importance of what alcoholism could do to people's lives, but it's not like hugely devastating for, for him and his family. Uh, the, but he's more just an asshole. The sister... He's a hypocrite. The sister hesitates. She's an Olympic Ugh. level uh, Oh my God, archer, that's so frustrating. And she just hesitates. But like, that's what she, there's There's just a flaw in each of them. And it's not a devastating flaw, but these are really flawed characters. And that's what he prefers to work with. You know, they're more interesting to him than superheroes with no flaws. Uh, but you're going to get that. And if you're not into that, like if you, again, if you saw Parasite and you didn't like it because of these characters, it's, it's, some more of that. But I think people you can really root for. Uh, also, some devastating things happen in this movie. Mm -hmm. Some really sad things. It's a heavy movie in some ways and also really light movie in others. Yes. There's a lot of jokes here and they're really funny. Like I was laughing out loud uh, while I was watching this because some of the stuff I'll, I'll mention one area in, in particular was an absolutely hilarious dig at something that is incredibly cliched in cinema and has been for decades and nobody talks about it and everyone thinks it, but nobody talks about it. And this movie does, and I'll get to it. I'll explain what it is. It's pretty dang good, but yeah, you should watch it with the caveats that we mentioned. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2006's the host. Mr. Kim formaldehyde. Dirty formaldehyde. Pour him into the sink. 
your daughter's still alive. Why didn't you contact the police or the military, a human rights organization, something? All right, Kelsey, get us started. What happens in The Host? So we start with the incredibly upsetting It's absurd, and then you find out that that's a true story. Yeah. It's bizarre, but they did that, and all this formaldehyde is now in the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, and I'm sorry, the Han River? The Han River, yes. Han River. Which runs through Seoul, South Korea. And... They aren't really clear, like, with how much time has passed, but... Well, they give us dates. Oh, do they? They do. I don't remember them off the top of my head. I didn't write them down, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know, one year later. I think, ultimately, this is, like, six years after the fact or something by the time we get to present day. But what happens in between? These fisher, these fishermen find some weird thing in the river, but they set it free. They put it back into the water. Because it's weird. Or they let it go on accident or something. Then there is a guy who is considering killing himself. But it's weird. He, like, sees the thing in the river. He does, yeah. And I don't really get what that, like... That's a common thing, tragically, in real life, is people throwing themselves off of a bridge over the Han River. I know, but I mean, like, seeing it, I, I don't know, it seemed like it... He sees something in the water, and everyone's too distracted by the fact that he's seeing something in the water, the people that are trying to save him, yeah, that he, he says, just gets to jump. He says, morons till the very end, have a good life. Mm-hmm. And then we meet our main character. Park Gondu, and that's Kong Ho Sung. And, yeah, he's a lazy... Lay about. He has sort of highlights. It's not, I mean, you could say it's bleach blonde hair, but it's more like they took highlights to his hair and instead of doing highlights, did the whole thing. But it's not but a grown whole out. thing. It's only in the tips. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, but that's grown out. It, mm-hmm. he's, it's explicitly like Bong Joon Ho says this, it's explicitly to make him seem like a lazy person. Yeah, and. He can't he can't stay awake. Now later the dad will say that he thinks it's his fault that his son is like this because he didn't feed him well because he was an alcoholic when he was like a little kid. He's not his kid. He's adopted. We find out later that he's adopted and that the father figure we see in this movie picked him up off the street. Mm. And because he was so malnourished as a child. That's why he's like this as an adult, Mm. is he can't stay awake very long. He's constantly passing out. And it'll happen throughout the movie. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't know if that was true or not. But now you're saying that. Yeah. Okay. so he picked him up off the street. Okay, interesting. You see, it rhymes. (laughs) It's like poetry. Yes. We meet his daughter. Park Hyun Seo. Hyunseo, Hyunseo, you're going to hear them say that a lot. Hyunseo! 
That's the daughter's name, played by Koa Sung. And she is very upset that her this guy is apparently her father, which I'm just like, how did he ever get a woman? He was young. I guess. <laughs> but she left the baby with him? Yeah, apparently. I guess. She's upset because her father didn't show up for, like, parents' day. Instead, her drunk uncle came. And we'll meet him, too, a little bit later. And the dad says, well, I tried to get a hold of you to talk to you about it, but you wouldn't answer your phone. And she's like, well, because I'm embarrassed by it. I never take it out. Because it's an old, shitty flip phone. Yes. Which will become important later. Yeah. And then, like, he offers her alcohol when they sit down to watch his sister in her archery. Yeah, he's a bad father. <laughs> yeah. Although, I don't know. You know, my dad offered me alcohol once. In when middle I was, school? Yeah, it was probably about that age. He, went, like, offered me a sip of his beer or something like that. Oh, I guess. I guess. See, I never think I never think of it that way. Like They're not trying I mean, to, like, get, yeah, become an alcoholic. Here's a beer of your own. Well, Be no, that's man. what he did do. Be, yes. He, uh-huh. he gave her her own I th- beer. I think, honestly, it's just because he's not thinking. I mean, yeah, like, I was given, like, a sip of wine mm. at dinner. But, but I think the point is, is he's not, like... He's not a good father. He's not trying to be a father. He's just trying to be a dude. And that's how he's gone through his entire life. And that's not going to serve him well anymore. So his dad, or adopted dad, I guess. Who is Park Hye Bong, played by Byun Hee Bong. Uh, that's the, the father character. They run like a food stand. Yeah, at the riverside. Like a food and... Snack booth sort of thing. Yeah, yeah and I guess... You can it, order... It, it seems a lot like what you'd find at the beach. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know? But they still, like, deliver it to you. And, like, you they get, have, like, a blanket they, number. Yeah, they have, they have blankets, or they have mats out there. That's really and cute. And they're all numbered, and so, you know, yeah, you just send the order to the mat. You know? That's cute. Mm-hmm. But I guess some of the we saw earlier when they were making the food, and I didn't understand that he was doing that as his job. He ate some of it. Yeah, he snapped off one of the tentacles of the squid. And then you find out that that was for customers, and they're uh-huh. very pissed that some of their food was taken. So he has to take out a replacement and has to count all ten tentacles. Well, no, he has to bring. He's bringing them free drinks. Yeah, and and look, and he brings them also another squid. Ah, okay. But when he goes out to deliver it... Everyone's looking at something. Everyone is looking at something. And it's so, like, I get that it's a joke, but it's more frustrating than anything else that he just won't put the drinks down. (laughs) He's carrying the tray. He doesn't even leave it at the mat when he goes to deliver it. He just carries it with him. Now, this does end up becoming part of the story. He ends up, like, throwing it in to feed uh-huh. the monster later. I get that. But, like, when it's happening, I was just like, put it down. <laughs> put it down. Yeah, you're, you're, it's not like you're not supposed to be frustrated with this guy. <laughs> do. There, so, also, I, I think I said they're watching his sister, who is an archer, in the Olympics? No, no, no. I, I think it's like a nationals tournament. Okay. So, I think it's nationally in South Korea. Okay. Uh, his sister, Park Namju, played by okay. Bayaduna. But there's this whole thing where she hesitates to let go, and that is also incredibly frustrating. Yep. The time's k- ticking down. I don't know if she even sees that clock, though. But her hesitation is what leads to her getting the bronze 
instead of the gold, which she would have. She is very, very good at archery, and she would have gotten the gold, but she didn't release the arrow in enough time. Mm-hmm. And so that last shot was disqualified. And they use her to create a jump scare. Like when they're looking into the water at what's going on, there is a loud thump, and it's her arrow, arrow hitting, hitting the, the thing. Yeah, uh-huh. Meanwhile, while he's out the, there serving these drinks, his dad and his daughter are watching this competition in the trailer. Yes. So, yeah. So, our main guy throws... He, like, Gung-du, spills some Gung-du. of the drinks and then throws one in. So, they, they see this thing hanging like phlegm from underneath the bridge, and then it just drops into the water. That's what everyone's looking at. And then they can kind of see some some shadow in the water, like the guy on the bridge. And so, yeah, he takes one of the cans of the drink, if it's a beer or a soda or whatever, and chucks it in the water. And then everyone just starts throwing shit, which is really Yeah, funny. everyone's trying to feed it <laughs> to get it to come up. Uh-huh. They're like, what is this thing? Yeah. They just keep throwing stuff into the river. Pollution then, being a big theme in this movie. Yes. And then it just comes out of the water and just... Way down the river, though. <laughs> and it, he, he just... Everyone's looking into the water and Gongdu looks up and he looks down the... And he just sees this thing just like... Ka-thump, ka-thump, ka-thump. And all these people start eat, running uh-huh. and he's just grabbing people. And yes. eating them. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. They all start running. And this is a very fun sequence. It is a lot of fun. Uh, this these yeah. people running. It is. And- it is eleven minutes into the movie, and we see every square inch of this monster. Yes, which is kind of the opposite of Jaws. Right, and the problem is that it looks like crap. The CG is not great, but that's it's okay. Bad. It's it's okay. It's very obviously CG. I think it's well designed. I think the design is really cool. I think it moves really great. I think he captures it on camera really well, despite the fact that he had no idea what he was doing (laughs) in order to capture something that would eventually be added in CG. It's just that it is very obviously CG, Mm -hmm. you know. But everything else is great. I love the acting. I love the... It's all kind of quiet at first, and it's very interesting. I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. It's not overly bombastic like you might expect an American action movie to be. Exactly. You would expect, like, loud music and, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. You would expect it to be bigger and, in a way, less engaging. The movie kind of comments on this a little bit. When they're running away, he grabs his daughter... And they're they're trying to run further inland, away from the river, and so is the monster. And it 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 slams into the back of a trailer under a bridge or something, and everyone's locked inside. And so Gongdu, his the first time where he's like, No, I have to do something. Well, he's spurred in the moment because he sees a guy with a major hero complex. This is the, the other reference to this sort of like American action hero trope is there's this white dude who comes up and and the two of them are now trying to open this door and and let all these people out and they do succeed in that and then they're going to continue running on but Gung Du has the idea of like hurting the animal I think or maybe the animal's gotten after the American at this point yeah he tries to pick up a sign which is held down by this cement weight and the american helps him but it's and just the like two of them hit it look at that 
and look at the monster. Yeah. That's not, like, just looking at the situation, it was just like, that's not going to do anything. And it did nothing. Yeah, so the American ends up getting actually attacked and mauled. But meanwhile, Gangdu is able to lift up this cement block at the end of the sign and slam it down on the monster's tail. The American does ultimately survive, but his condition is going to spur on a lot of the events of the rest of the movie. Yeah, okay, let's talk about that. Yes. I, because that is a, that is a plot line I do not understand. Yes. Okay, guys, so this American who's been pinned down, mauled, but not killed. He loses an arm. Later on, they're going to show him, and he's got, like, these weird things on his back. They're saying there's some sort of disease that he got from this creature, and then that he died. Now, later, we're going to find out, well, and the whole reason that that is important, everyone, is because the idea is that our guy, Gung Du, has that same condition, because he's stupid enough to volunteer the information that he got splattered with the blood of this creature. Because he's genuinely, he's like, wait a minute, do I need to be worried? (laughs) Guys, never trust your government. If your government's asking you if you've been touched with the blood of of a monster, say no. Just (laughs) say no. The dad at one point actually says that the government says so, we have to accept it. Like, No, the dad is the one that says, no, you're fine, you're fine, don't say anything. No, later on. When they're talking about the fact that there's a virus. Because they're talking about the fact that then how come he isn't suffering any symptoms? It's like, well, if the government says so, we have to accept it. I don't remember that. But so the idea is that this American guy dies from some disease. And the question is, does Gongdu have it? Later, guys, we will find out that there is no disease. Yes. But because they said there was... They have to continue to say that there is? Yes. So, would you believe me if I said that this is a commentary on the Iraq War? So, we attacked them because we thought we, they had got bombs and then they didn't. And we had to keep saying that they did. The virus lie we is America doing America, i.e. the Iraq War. Regardless of whether the initial assessment was in good faith, they did have to, once they said it, had to continue the lie because it made things easier to get done. I mean, ultimately, we wanted to invade Iraq, and people were on our side because we, or very few people, but a lot of American people were on our side because they had weapons of mass destruction, and it made us made it easier to justify going to war, all while harming the citizens of the country that they're doing this in. Uh, it's the same thing that's happening here. America says there is a virus, whether they whether it's in good faith or not. Once they've said it, they've gotten the media and the military involved. They've announced it to the public. They can't now say, oh, no, wait, we were wrong. There is no virus. Especially since this allows them, like, a, a semblance of control in this area. But it's a complete disregard for the citizens that live there. And, and, and Agent Yellow is what they use to kill the virus in quotes could be a reference to Agent Orange, which America did actually drop on Korea in the 60s. So there's a lot of history when it comes to war and protest, especially. Bong Joon-ho said in an interview that protesting was kind of a way of life, kind of like the brother. You know, we meet all these people that are young and they just go to the protests 
uh, all the time. It's just like a way of life. Like, okay, well, then we're going to have a meal and then we're going to go to this protest. And it's just what they did with their free time was they protested. And that's that's what Bong Joon-ho actually did as a citizen in South Korea. Well, there are scenes with protesters, with Molotov cocktails, with tear gas. <laughs> Is there any chance that that might come from some of your own experience we didn't talk about yet. I think back when you were in college, you know, you weren't always such a sedate man, were you? So I entered university in 1988, and even when I was a freshman, the entire campus was covered in tear gas. It was around the time the military regime was being ousted, so protesting was part of our daily life. We would eat breakfast, go protest, and then go to our lectures, and then go back to protest, eat dinner, and then um, on our way home, we would find newspapers with photos of the protests that we were just at. So it was really part of our daily life. Yeah, it's very uh, anti-war, anti-colonialism. Anti-America. Anti- well, it's. Mm, I don't know that you can say it's anti-America. I think the white dude who gets his arm bitten off and eventually dies, I think, is... He might be obnoxious, but he did save lives. And I think that's kind of... It, Korea and America have a complicated relationship. And a lot of people think that America shouldn't be there anymore. But it doesn't necessarily mean that America we equals bad. Yeah. That's why that's how we put the formaldehyde in the water. We have military zones in South Korea. Um, did you personally also see it as sort of a, a protest film in a way? Or for you, was it is that people just projecting their own thoughts onto it? So it is true that the film is a powerful satire. You know, even among American films, there are those that provide satire on the U.S. and criticize the government. It's the same way in Korea and Japan. We have films that, you know, uh, you know that are a satire on the U.S. And of course, in terms of the, the relationship between Korea and the U.S., these two countries have been longtime allies, but at the same time, there are a lot of complicated emotions and relationships entangled in the alliance. So I think if you're aware of that context, it does provide a richer background for this film. Now, with all of that said, this is just something that I'm only sort of vaguely aware of, right? Because I have the luxury of being vaguely aware of it, but people in South Korea don't have that luxury. Well, let's just wrap that little sliver of a story up. They end up, because they have to keep saying that there is this disease, they end up saying that it's in his brain? Yes. And it's weird because I, it, they set it up to make it look like he's getting a lobotomy. No. And yes, then he's yes. not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is this moment where he gets a drill into his brain and then he's just fine after that. I'm so confused. It's because they're just taking a sample from his brain. They weren't drilling a hole in his brain. That's not how you cure a brain virus. You don't You don't give them a... Then what is he doing? Taking a sample from his brain. That's what people do? You got to drill into people's brains sometimes, yeah. Like, you no, not into their brains, but into their skulls to get at their brain. And people are just fine after that. My grandpa had, uh, when he had shingles, they drilled two giant holes in his brain. You could actually see a divot uh, in his skull to relieve the pressure 
He, you could actually see a divot in his head right here along his hairline because of that. Yeah, people get drills in their skull. Totally. That is so terrifying. Uh-huh. And for some, I don't know how many of them, for some of these operations, they need to be awake. Because they need to make sure that they're not doing anything, like, terrible to your brain. So they need you to be awake. And so you'll be awake. You'll be numbed. You can't feel any of it. But you're awake. And then you need to, like, take mental aptitude tests while it's going on. Like, you know, they'll show you pictures and you name the animal that you see and, like, stuff like that. They just need to make sure that you're still responding the whole time and they're not fucking shit up while they're in there. God. Yeah, isn't that nuts? That is terrifying. <laughs> Ugh. Okay, so that's that whole thing. We don't need to talk about that story anymore. Unless there's anything else you wanted to add about it. Not particularly. Okay. But th- you just need to understand that that's kind of the undercurrent of the entire movie, is that the American and South Korean military and police are going to be heavily involved in this situation, not just because there's a monster that might that the American government might be responsible for. Let's turn it on to the story of the virus. And you know, you could really, if you were an anti-vaxxer, you could use you could see this as like a like a metaphor for the government's trying to tell me I have to wear a mask, you know, all that stuff. The virus isn't even real, which bullshit, <laughs> but still. But I would argue there is a demonstrable difference <laughs> between the two. So uh, don't do that. How about that? So, yes, this is going on the entire time when they're on their mission later on in the movie. They are under constant threat of American and Korean military and police grabbing them and stopping them because of this virus. It's a way for the government to crack down on the populace. But so back to the moment at hand. The creature is running. He's grabbed his daughter. They're running. They fall. He grabs her again. And it's not not her. her. It's somebody else's daughter. That moment is like... Oh, and it's happening in slow-mo, and we see his daughter like, where'd you go? Yeah, and she gets grabbed by the tail of uh-huh. the monster. And then it it dives back into the river, comes up on the other side, and attacks more people on the other side, and then we don't see where it goes. And you think she's done for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now there's like this big area that they've set up as like a vigil place where people can post pictures and and for people that they might have been there in the area and the government needs to quarantine them because there was this weird monster like that's the idea they're in like this big multi-purpose room but it has this big area that's set up for people who are mourning the dead people yes and there is of course her picture up there so this is the whole family gets together at this point Yes, the sister is there, the brother is there, the father, the grandfather. Yeah, so we're meeting for the for the first time here in person. Park Nam Ju, the sister, and Park Nam Il, the brother, played by Bayaduna and Park Hae Il, respectively. And of course, Nam Il, the brother, is drunk 
and Namju, the sister, brings her bronze medal and offers it she to brought, her. She brought you the bronze medal, Hyun which Seo. causes the sister to cry. Uh, and everyone just starts crying and but bawling. But over the top. And they're, like, pulling each other down to the ground, and, and they're writhing on the ground. Is this supposed to be funny? Yes. Yes. Why? Because at this point, we the audience thinks she's dead. Because... Korean cinema is very much genre jumping. Like it very much fluctuates. It doesn't stick to standard tropes that you might expect in Western cinema where horror movies are horror movies. They don't have a lot of horror movies that don't have some element of comedy in them. Now they do. They exist. They exist. Horror comedy. But they go. It's not a, it's not like that. It's not a horror comedy. It is a horror movie with comedic moments in it. Like, I wouldn't call the host a comedy, but there are comedy bits in there. And the idea is, just like I've talked about this before, about it, it, when you go into a horror movie, expecting a horror movie, you're going to be tense, you're going to be mentally prepared for things. If you go into a horror movie and you get silly moments that you're like, what the fuck is going on? Oh my God. And then devastation it's much more devastating when you're not prepared for it so these fluctuations between genre are designed to sort of keep you on guard and get you comfortable interchangeably throughout the length of the film so it's not just i'm ready for anything and nothing's going to surprise me like it's meant to keep you off your guard okay it's like the easiest way to get somebody to cry is to make them laugh first okay but I don't get why it's funny that these people are grieving. Like, it it seems weird to me. Oh, I should probably also point out that an element of Korean cinema across all genres is is melodrama. Melodrama is real big in Korean cinema. And this is a sort of, like, comedic spin on that melodrama. People in mourning and they're wailing, but they're falling all over each other as a result of that. It's kind of mocking the melodramatic trope. That Korean cinema sees. Okay. Okay, so that's just lost on me because I am not used to that. Yeah, it's it's a commentary on Korean cinema. Okay. And then, like, to continue that strange comedy in the next scene, this guy in a hazmat suit will come in. Oh, God. This and is the moment. Falls. And I'm just like, I get that that's supposed to be funny. And he gets back up and and just, you know, inside that suit, he is praying that nobody saw him yet. (laughs) And he doesn't need to comment on it. But that's not the part that got me. The part that got me is he's trying to explain to everybody what's going on. And he, he stops and he says something to the effect of, you know what, actually... An explanation should be on the news right now. Let's let the news explain. And he turns on the TV and he starts flipping through the channels and he's like, the news isn't on right now. (laughs) That killed me. Because everyone far and wide knows the trope of the news is always talking about the specific story that's important to the plot exactly when people turn it on constantly in every movie in every genre it is ubiquitous so the fact that it's like the news isn't even fucking on right now is really really funny it does eventually come on because <laughs> they they need it to do its job which is why everyone else uses it that way but i i liked the unsubtle jab at that 
But that's where everyone learns about the American has some sort of virus and we think it's from the monster and so we need to quarantine people. And And that's when our main guy gets quarantined. But it's not really quarantine. It's like just plastic. He's behind plastic. You know, he's in one of those isolation beds. But we see very, he gets out of it very easily later. So I don't. Yeah, because he's not locked in the isolation. Like, this isn't, this isn't a hospital designed to support This isn't disease. America. <laughs> no, no, no. Even in America, like... In America, we... we well, no, in movies, we lock sure. them up. Yeah, because you're in some special... You're in a CDC office or whatever. But this isn't the case. They're just in a normal-ass hospital that ha- that's not prepared to quarantine literally everyone in there. So, in the same way that a lot of our hospitals here in America and in many other countries were not prepared for COVID-19, that... It completely devastated our our healthcare system. It's the same sort of way. Where they just have these sort of isolating things where it's just keeping them behind plastic. You, they're not prepared to be in a situation where people might not want to be there. And it's literally everyone. You can't keep track of everyone. It's going to be easy to get out. I guess, but I felt like he was the only one they were keeping in serious quarantine because he was the only one stupid enough to admit that he had been splashed with. But they needed to they needed to get everyone there. They needed to test everyone and they needed to proactively quarantine those that had any contact with the monster. And he's like, well, I didn't have contact with the monster directly, but when I hit its tail, it splashed blood on me. Well, anyway, that night he gets a phone call from his daughter finding out that she is, in fact, still alive. Because she's so small, she was able to hide in this little alcove because apparently the monster likes to save humans for later. Yes. So what he does is he collects bodies when he goes on these runs. He vomits them up in this sewer under a bridge over the Han River and leaves them in this dank crevice. Doesn't care if they're alive or dead. She is, at this point... The only one still alive. Mm-hmm. Every she's in that she's in this sewer with a bunch of dead bodies. And you know, it's she's a very brave, smart, resourceful. Yeah, resourceful yeah. young girl, and she keeps trying dead people's phones, and none of them work. But the point is, is that Gongdu got a phone call from his daughter, and will do anything to get to her. But then it's weird. Then it becomes like he can't communicate. I guess it's supposed to be that he's like in shock. But he's trying to explain what happened, but he can't speak in complete sentences. And people are just like, what is going on with this guy? Obviously, he's dying from this disease. Okay, I think you're reading it a little bit differently than I read it. Okay. The fact of the matter is that the police don't care. They don't want to listen to you. You say one sentence and they're already like, fuck you. You're lying. You're insane. There's something wrong with you. I don't care. But there was. That's the 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 attitude that the cop has with him. Yes, agreed. But the way he's talking is also very strange. He's not speaking, like I said, in complete sentences. Sure. It was like one of my students' essays. I was like, what are you? You're trying to communicate an idea to me and I don't understand. He's an idiot. He's an imbecile. But the point is, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have something to say. It doesn't mean that what he has to say isn't important. And if you just stopped and listened, but they're not willing to listen to him because they write him off as a kook. Well, the family ends up getting out of there. And this family is just the worst. They, <laughs> like, you want to root for them. 
But you can't. We mentioned this earlier. This is Bong Joon-ho's sort of bread and butter. Yeah. Are these sort of flawed humans. The brother is so annoying. He's such a hypocrite. All he does is complain. He he talks shit on his brother and has no qualms with the shit he does. Mm -hmm. And it's just... And the sister is frustrating, too. And the the father can be a total moron when it works for the film. And it's just like, this family is the worst. And you're supposed to be rooting for them. And it's frustrating. Yeah. But the point is, is that they're real people. And they do kind of all use their faults in some way or another. And the dad is always trying to bribe people. And I don't know if it's that he doesn't bribe them with enough or if it's insulting that he bribes them at all. I don't know. Yeah. But either way, it never works out. But he ends up paying out a bunch of money to some gangsters every cent he has to some gangsters to get them like a van and the supplies that they need. Very not good supplies. Yes. But they do get them out of there. Yeah. And the gangsters are like, we know who you are. We know they're looking for you. Like, what are you going to do? Go to the cops. But they did need that stuff. (laughs) We are then introduced to, like, homeless people that aren't aware of the monster. There's, like, one homeless old dude, and then there's also these kids. And I guess because they're homeless, they don't have any idea about this monster. Or the, I mean, what are they going to do? Are they going to watch it on TV? They don't well, have no, a TV. But they might have noticed that the whole area has been qu- quartered off and there's no people around. That That's is weird. a boon to them. That's good news to them. Great. We can get into these places. So we have this these two brothers that break into the, the food stall that the park's own. And they eat well that night. But in the process, they get captured by the monster. Yeah, and the monster's just really not good at killing kids. Yeah. So the kid, the younger, <laughs> the younger kid survives. So the bodies are spit out with Hyun Seo and um, Seju, played by Dong Ho Lee, the little boy, is the only one that survives. His brother doesn't survive. And Hyun Seo takes it upon herself to sort of protect him. While they're down there, show him her hiding spot and make sure that, you know, he doesn't get himself killed while they're down there. Yeah, and you might be wondering how on earth did this family produce this little girl? And yeah, we don't get it either. Because it doesn't sound like the mom was great. She left right when the baby was born. Yeah, well. So it's like, where did this kid come from? I don't know. She had to be resourceful in her own ways. But she had, as opposed to Gong Du, who had to be resourceful and didn't have any support, he was sort of on his own and thus became malnourished is the explanation that the movie gives. And that's kind of affected his entire life. She does have a support structure, but she still has to be resourceful. There's this thing that they talk about, Siori, which... Is a weird concept that Bong Joon-ho was worried wouldn't translate to America. And I think he's right. It's this weird sort of um, what they call a looter culture for kids that steal food. Not necessarily basically to fuck with people. They're like lower class young people who will steal like melons and other things. And they're not arrested when they're caught, but they're chastised you know for being a bad kid or whatever it's this it's a different sort of culture there and the concept's called sayori okay and they bring it up and that's what that's what the father says 
Gong Du was doing when he was a kid, living on the streets. That's what the older brother tells Seiju that they're kind of doing. No, just think of it like Sayori. Mm-hmm. The way that we find out about the kid's supposed mal- malnourishment is from the father, and the way that he tells it is because the his other kids are mad that that guy fell asleep again. And while he's telling the story, they fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, supposed I, to I be feel funny. Like there's a joke here, there is a and joke I just there. don't see it. I'm it's just- funny to fall asleep because you're bored when somebody is giving you this long emotional monologue. That's the joke. I guess it just seems like it would have been connected to the fact that he falls asleep, but then it's like, no, but that's for like but a that, legitimate reason. Right, I don't. but that is part of the joke. It's it's a layered joke. But the point is, is they're all falling asleep. Gongdu wakes up. They found their way back to the, they're in the trailer again. But because I just he sees say the monster. That I I just want to say it is difficult to not only watch a movie that is from a different culture. That is also in a different language. That also you're writing things down. Yeah. And you're trying to follow along with the story. Like, I, Yeah. We run into this when we do foreign language films but uh, so before. Like, but of course, comedy is a lot harder to communicate across cultures. And so what I'm saying is, is that there might be jokes that people think are obvious, but I'm, I'm not able to watch like a hawk the whole time. Yeah. But yeah, so he they wake up and the father explains that it's watching them. No, Gong Du says that. It's watching us. I think. The father is talking and Gong Du wakes up in the middle of him talking to notice the monster is watching them. And they get hit by him. He rolls the trailer. So they try to shoot it, but it's like, that gun isn't going to do anything to it's that thing. It's a real thing. shitty gun, yeah. And it doesn't. But the government is also watching and doesn't do anything? Oh, yeah. Well, the government's running to them. Hmm. But they don't do anything. It's, they're just like police officers. Hmm. They're not like the full-blown military. They're just police officers patrolling the river. Oh. And so they're running after them. But isn't the military all around? Aren't they all cornering off this area? But this place is now empty. They've come back to here after it's been cleared out. Mm. So, yes, the monster's attacking. The military or these officers or whatever are coming from a far, a far ways away. The they got to get out of there. shooting and slipping. And it's not working. Oh, the dad asks Gong Du, does anybody have any bullets? And Gong Du, or ask the family, does anybody have any more bullets left? And Gong Du says, yes, I have one left, and hands him his gun. And as they run, the father turns around, fires at the monster, and click. There aren't any bullets. And then Gong Du counts on his fingers. He realizes he miscounted. And and the father turns back to him, and he's like, <sighs> sort of like the disappointment of a father, you know? Like, in this moment where there's a monster bearing down on them. But it's also the love of a father who might still be disappointed. He turns around to them and he waves them away. He's like, guys, get out of here. And as he does that, he gets trampled by the monster. The monster gets away. It's It goes into the water again. And Gongdu goes back to his dad. The, the actual biological children, Namju and Nam-il, are like, we have to go. We have to go. We have to go. We have to get out of here. But Gongdu, like, can't leave his dad behind, ends up putting, like, a newspaper over his face in the pouring rain, which is also supposed to be sort of tragic and comic at the same time. And as he's 
finally getting to leave, that's when he gets captured by the police. But the brother and sister get away. The brother who gets separated from the sister, they both get separated from each other. And the brother goes to his buddy, who's a salary man, which is a very Asian term of somebody who just... <laughs> oh, and he's going to turn him in. Yes. The brother doesn't know that yet, but he's just trying to get information about which bridge could Hyunseo be have been talking about when she called. And he needs this man to help him out. I think that's what he's looking for. He's looking for something else, but he ends up finding what Bridget is in the meantime while he's there. Yes. And yeah, that, that friend, these, these were two guys who used to protest together in their youth, you know, like Bong Joon-ho would, would have done. And he goes into the other room and like everyone in the office is there in that room. And they're like, Oh my God, it's him. They called the police on him. And so he realizes this, but sees the bridge that it must be from. And, uh, oh, they're, they're trying to trace the cell phone. That's what it is. The, the thing that the police would say, would said they couldn't do. What are you kidding me? We have, we use those resources on more important things, but this friend works for like the telecommunications company or something and can trace it. Awesome. Yeah. So he runs away from all these people and the cops who are looking for him again, under the understanding that he broke quarantine and might be dangerous. Um, <laughs> And he ends up falling off a bridge trying to hide and passing out under the bridge. But he ends up texting his sister the location location. before he passes out. Yeah. Which I thought he died. I was like, I guess he died. (laughs) But he's fine later. It is sort of a tragic death moment that they give him. You totally think he just died in this moment. But he didn't. The, The sister goes to the bridge, sees the monster hesitates. Yeah, she has her bow and arrow and she hesitates. She gets knocked behind some concrete where it can't reach her. Again, I wrote down, did she just die? Yep, <laughs> kind of seems like she has. But she didn't. She didn't die either. This is also where Gong Tu talks to the American scientist and he's like, you didn't know? Yes. There's no virus. We're still going to drill into your brain because you're obviously suffering symptoms of something. Even among our team, very few know what I'm going to tell you. My lips are sealed. The late Sergeant Donald, first one classified as a victim of the virus, was given an extensive autopsy, and no virus was found. He died of shock during the operation. Also, no traces of the virus were found in any of the patients quarantined. Simply put, so far, there is no virus whatsoever. And they go to drill into his brain. And it's almost like when they do that, that's a turning point for him. And it like kind of fixed him a little bit. I know what I meant when I said this is some of the most fucked up shit when they were doing that. Because I thought I was about to watch a fucking lobotomy. And I was like, why is a lobotomy in this movie? (laughs) And then I wrote, oh my God, the brother's alive. Yep. (laughs) And there's another homeless man who is living under... The bridge. Has no idea what's going on. Uh, Well, or it doesn't fucking matter to him. What does he fucking care? He's just trying to survive. (laughs) He's just, you know what? I'm fine under here. My my life. What am I going to do? Go to my mom's to bunker down? Yes, the brother wakes up. The homeless man hits him over the head with a bottle. (laughs) Because he like tries to take his stuff. But ultimately, it's like, fine, I'll go with you. Yeah, but like, after he hits him over the head. Yeah, but he's like, don't just think you're just taking this. 
And so the two of them go together and they pay a cab driver to take them to the bridge. The sister wakes up. She goes searching more again. But yeah, meanwhile. The little girl is fed up with waiting. uh Uh-huh. And has put together a makeshift rope with people's clothing. And a baton from a police officer. But it's definitely not long enough. Yeah. And she throws it and it catches, but it's not long enough. So uh-huh. what's she got to do? She's oh got to try to jump. moment. And you think she's going to make it, but she gets grabbed. She runs up the monster who is sleeping and grabs onto the thing in this slow motion moment. And it's like heroic. And then she sort of stops and then she just seems to move in the air on her own. Like she's being lifted up and you're like, what's happening? And then pulled around and then back down again. And the monster like sets her back down on the ground again. Mm-hmm. That's a great moment. I loved that moment. The next thing I have is the dad coming down. And I was very annoyed because I was like, there's no way those shirts would hold that dude's weight. Yeah. So he's broken out on his own now. And so all three of these siblings are free and searching for this daughter, but they haven't met up with each other yet. And the father goes down and and does, in fact, find the place where she is. And he climbs down there and fucking nothing's there. It's empty. She's not there. There are protesters. Yeah. Protesting the release of Agent Yellow, which the Americans and the South Korean military are going to deploy in the streets. And there are all these protesters there, which again, protest is a part of South Korean life for many people, specifically our writer director and the pod that's supposed to release the agent yellow. What does it look like? It's the shape of the monster hanging from under the bridge from when we first saw him. No, no, I did not notice that. I mean, Who's the real monster, Kelsey? America, <laughs> clearly. Like, it, I'm sorry, this movie feels very anti-American. Uh, we could take Which it. I get it. I yeah. get why. It sucks, but I get it. So yeah, there's this But whole that thing. was also confusing because some people just like died immediately from Agent Yellow. Some people had these crazy immediate reactions. Well, yeah, it depends. Lots of things are happening. A lot of other people have zero reaction. They're to like it. bleeding from their ears and shit like that. Our family is bleeding from the, the ears. The brother is, not the father. Yeah, yes. Gongdu? Yeah, uh-huh. He oh. he starts bleeding too. Oh. Yeah. So so what ends up happening here in this moment, Kelsey? Can you describe how the events sort of wrap up with this monster here? At this location, because it is like a buffet. There's all these people here. This whole valley's a smorgasbord. Yes. They're underground. <laughs> They're underground. This valley's just one long smorgasbord. They're under the ground. It's tremors. So the monster is hurt by the Agent Yellow. It's getting fucked up by it, too. To show you, yes, the Agent Yellow is dangerous. Just releasing this chemical out into the public like this. Gongdu, who has made it there as well, after the monster gets completely knocked out, manages to pull his daughter from out of its mouth. Because when he when he finally found the monster again, he saw Hyunseo's arm dangling out of its mouth. And so he manages to pull his daughter out and this little boy. Yeah, it's sad because she's dead. But- she does, in fact die there is a moment which we haven't talked about when the the family makes it back to the the snack booth 
that they operate and they're all eating. The daughter, Hyun Seo, comes up out of nowhere and starts reaching out and grabbing the noodles. And then they like, they're all kind of interacting together. And then the next scene is her in the sewers again. And you're like, what, what? That is literally the only scene where the entire family is together. That's something that Bong Joon-ho kind of wanted, apparently. He wanted them all to be together, Even at least in one scene. Even though that's just in their imagination? Yeah. It's kind of this sweet moment to kind of also show you what it is that they're fighting for, you know? And they talk about what kind of foods would you want around somewhere around there. So yeah, she is dead, but this boy, Seju, is still alive. And so this is when, like, the real fight happens, when it wakes back up again. And... A lot of different things happen, but first the brother and his protester past starts making these Molotov cocktails and throwing them at the monster, driving it into a particular position. Yes, and amidst the smoke of the Agent Yellow, it's very, very cool it's looking. so cool, and there's a lot of real cool slow-mo shots. It's a really, and the music is great. And then all of a sudden, when he's like standing down with this monster. But, but he keeps throwing them and missing. He does. But he is driving him away and into a, a sort of a pinned position where the homeless man that he teamed up with starts pouring gasoline on the monster. And the monster doesn't fucking know what it is. He seems it's to just, like it. Yeah, he's like, oh, it starts like kind of lapping it up. And so as Namil starts running up oh with his last God. Molotov cocktail, he gets this great Banksy fucking, pose. Yeah, exactly. And throws it, but it slips out of his hand. And drops behind, it. And it drops it behind him. And he is devastated but this is when the sister comes up and she has an arrow already prepped to be lit on fire finally she pays off yeah it it, there's a a gap in logic here where you can't just light an arrow on fire it has this like sponge on it already i don't know where she got that i don't know if i missed it or if it's just ah we just need to get this arrow on fire don't worry (laughs) she dips that in the fire of the molotov cocktail that he dropped and hits him bullseye or monster's eye right in his eye and fucks him up. Um, but it is finally Gong Du who ends up ultimately killing him by impaling him with a pole. In its mouth. In its mouth. And it actually kills him. Too bad the CG's real bad. I, You know, at a certain point, you just stop caring. In this moment, it just sucks because he's like right next to it. It's, it's supposed to be this harrowing moment. Yeah, it's it- so good. Like the moment is really good and it is kind of undercut. By it would be awesome if they could re-release it. it. Yeah, with just just the CG redone. Mm-hmm. I don't need anything else fucking touched about this movie. Just that. Well, I need to figure out what's going on with this no virus situation because supposedly all the people believe that there is a virus and that this guy is carrying it. And now suddenly the government doesn't care? Well, because there really isn't a virus. Right. It's more important that the but, monster is killed. But now. no, but everybody just forgets about that? Well, we skip forward in time after this moment. After they grieve over the daughter, her death, they find this little boy and he wakes up and. Here's the parallels. There's this homeless boy who was scrounging for food for his whole life. This is Gong Du's opportunity to connect with somebody who was just like him when he was a kid and do the thing that his father did, which is care for this young boy. Again, it's like poetry. So if they rhyme, it's obviously not a replacement for his daughter, but it is an opportunity for him to raise this boy and rescue him from the streets. And that's what ends up happening. And the two of them, are now running this snack booth. 
at the river now talking about all the things that they want, you know, do we want to watch TV while we eat our, our dinner or whatever? You know, like it's, it's very familial moment that we get here at the end. Anything to say about that? Yeah, I think that's sweet. I, I think it's sad that the daughter had to die, but it's sweet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here's the thing about Korean horror, Korean horror movies. We talk about how melodrama is so prevalent in Korean cinema. Korean horror movies end in despair. They generally do not have happy endings. It's people wailing and and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> like, that's how Korean horror movies end, generally. What other big Korean horror movies have you and I liked? There's A Tale of Two Sisters. Which I actually liked. I just didn't like the American version. I liked the the Korean version. We still haven't seen Train to Busan. But I know there's one that we really liked. Is that Memoir of a Murderer? Yeah, but... Yeah. Yeah, but what? I really liked that movie. No, I was I was just thinking that's not Memories of a Murderer. Memoir of a Murderer. Who, which is the one that Bong Joon-ho did. Mm -hmm. That's all that that's where it's not was that's where my head was. It, it, that's not Bong Joon-ho, but that's not what we're talking about. Yes, that is Korean. There are a lot of really big ones, The Haunted Asylum, Train to Busan, which I mentioned before, The Closet, The Wailing, Whispering Corridors, The Host, Red Shoes, Cinderella, Thirst, we saw. Mm -hmm. I don't remember how Thirst ends. I think it has a tragic ending. That sounds about right. I don't really remember that being scary. I remember it mostly just being fucking sad. Yeah, uh-huh. That's what I said. It's like Korean horror is about despair. I mean, yeah, Tale of Two Sisters is sad, but it is also kind of creepy. And we do have a person who's been wanting us to watch that for a really long time, and I think we should address that. First of all, it does not fall in line with what we do year-wise, because they're made in the 2000s very, very close to each other. Yeah, to be clear, we do a classic movie over 20 years old and a modern movie under 20. We, f we blur the line when it comes to double features, but those were released very close to each other. But also, I think we couldn't, like, find them. You could There was some issue them. with that, yeah. Weird. So this was huge in Korea. It was absolutely gigantic. It was, at the time and for years afterwards, the highest grossing film in South Korean cinema. And they actually count by ticket sales. They don't count by dollars made. So inflation does not account for that. It's just that popular. Right now, it's like number 18. Because after The Host, Korean cinema had like a fucking explosion. Over 20% of the South Korean, based on ticket sales, there were enough tickets that over 20% of the entire South Korean population saw this movie in theaters. Eventually, in 2015, they built a statue of the monster and put it next to the Han River. So it's like their Rocky statue, <laughs> but for the monster, which is pretty cool. Um, on the current charts, it is one place, one place above Parasite. It's number 18 and Parasite's number 19. But there's some, you know, 17 other movies have now surpassed that since then. And it was it was number one for years. So that's pretty cool. Very cool. It is good. Yeah. I see why. So, what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? I would guess it's pretty high. I'm going to say maybe maybe a 90. 93. There you go. As populous pleasing as it is intellectually satisfying, the host combines scares, laughs, and satire into a riveting monster movie. Metacritic of 85. 
Do you think that that is overrated or underrated? I'd say it's right around what I'd get it. I'm going to give it an 87. That's so funny. I mean, it's not dead on, but I was going to say 88. There you go. Yeah, I think this is very good. I really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've seen it multiple times now. I think it is. Big fan of this movie. Very, very good. I wish, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that went over my head. I I'll just be, think that this is, I, I don't know, maybe I feel, maybe I'm giving it a lot of, you know, it's Korean. Benefit of the doubt. And, you, you know, think? like I, I understand that there's a lot of shit that I'm not understanding here. So maybe that is probably bulking this up a little bit. But I think the acting is great. Yeah, I hate the characters, but they they are committed to those characters. And there's something very impressive about that, you know? It's like, it's a character you don't necessarily like, but at the same time you do. It's weird when the actor's able to do that. You're able to have compassion and empathy for a flawed character. And I think that's the point. Is, you know, you don't have to agree with everything they do to still care about what they're going through. Right, but it wasn't, it wasn't just like a flawed hero. It wasn't like I was just like, yeah, of course they have flaws. Everybody does. Yeah. No, these were genuinely people I would not like to know. But at the <laughs> same time, I'm like, I still care about you somehow. They're human. Yeah. And they elicit compassion from you. And I think that's that's normal and good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a fan of this movie. I, I will have already put in clips, I think. We've talked about enough things to where I'll put in clips from some interviews with Bong Joon-ho. I'll also share them on Twitter. So follow us on Twitter so you can get the whole things there. He'll provide a lot of context for certain things, which is really good. So I'd recommend that. Yeah, I, the downside is there's just a lot of context that we don't have because we grew up in a different culture. But that doesn't prevent us from being able to sort of empathize with the story that they're telling here. And it's just good. It's good filmmaking. It's he's, well made, He's very yeah. talented. He's, it's shocking to me that I never got bored. Yeah. I mean, think about the movies that Bong Joon-ho has made. Or at least that he's famous for, right? So there's the big ones, Memories of Murder, Which right? Which we've not seen. Which is a, you know, sort of bumbling police force trying to catch a murderer. That's like a thriller, right? There's The Host, which is a monster movie. There's Mother, which is supposed to be one of his really big and good ones, which not I that haven't mother. seen. No, not that mother. <laughs> IMDb synopsis says a mother desperately searches for the killer who framed her son for a girl's horrific murder. Uh, so a completely different sort of context there. Uh, and then after that is Snowpiercer, and then Okja, and then Parasite. So, but my point is, is that he does, he doesn't just do the same thing over and over again. Well... He does no. I, he has the same. He has the same message. Yes, a lot. and yeah, but he he frames it in different packages. You know, he yeah. makes a different movie. So what I'm, but we're talking about all the how well shot it was. You know how well directed it was. We're not talking. I'm not talking about the message he's giving. I've already said as much that he has certain things that he really cares about, and he tries to put that in as many of his movies as he can. But he's managed to direct like a different type of movie every single time and had great success with it. So he's obviously just a very talented filmmaker in general. Yes. Outside of any sort of genre restrictions. And that scene is just really good. Like when he's on the riverbank, 
I just love the way that he comes to grips with what's happening around him. It is a new sort of classic horror moment. Like yeah. if you if you you find a top ten list, a listicle, because people love to make these so much, talking about you know best moments in horror movies or best best monster reveals or best foreign horror movie scenes or whatever, any of those, you'll find this movie in that list for that moment. And the weird parts that I don't like about it, like the weird... The sobbing on the floor of the NPR. That part <laughs> and the weird non-virus thing. I, like yeah. those two things were the weirdest, just like off-putting parts for me. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I don't... What? Even those were not enough to detract for me because there's so that it's so well put together. Yeah. And the acting is very good. Yeah. The main dude is even though you don't like the character, he's very compelling. Like I said, I mean he's in some real like if you if you think about Korean cinema, great popular Korean movies, you're going to see the same names over and over again. But Kang Ho Sung is in tons of them. Like he is, you know how you talk about like the Hollywood elite, the Hollywood, like these are the big names, your Brad Pitts and your, you know, whatever, your Leo DiCaprio's like, that's who he is. Like he is the, a big name Korean actor and he's in all those major movies. Like we mentioned before at the beginning of this, he's in memories of murder, Snowpiercer, and parasite by Bong Joon-ho, but he's also in thirst. He's in uh, sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. He's in a lot of these movies. He's a great actor. I thought he did really good. And plays sort of different characters in each of them. Like, even if you compare his character in Parasite, who is a lower class, maybe kind of an idiot character. Another person you really don't like, and yet somehow you're rooting for uh -huh. them. But his sort of, like, personifications of these characters, his representations of them, they're different. Like, they're different people, mm -hmm. you know? Anyway. That was 2006's The Host. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Next week is a recommendation week. Yeah, themed around what, Kelsey? Australia. Australian horror. Yes. Jazzed. Okay, so we've seen some Australian horror movies. Yeah, we saw The Babadook. We saw Lake Mungo Cut, which we watched. With Fear, Inc. With Fear, Inc., right. Yeah, okay. But. Yeah, so this one was recommended to us by Craig. Thank you, Craig. Yes, thank you, Craig. Uh, what, are, what are these two Australian horror movies? So a movie called Razorback, which we have never seen. We have never seen. It's like a, from what I can tell, not reading too much because I don't want to spoil anything for me. It's like an 80s cult horror movie. Okay. Sort of thing, you know. And a movie that we've seen. We have seen. That we did enjoy? We did, which is weird. <laughs> Kelsey, okay, tell them which, which movie it is. Uh, it's called The Loved Ones. Yes. I don't know why it's called that. It's very good. Oh, I guess maybe because she loves the guys that she chooses, I we, guess. We really enjoyed this movie, despite the fact that you could argue that some scenes are a little torture porny. A little? <laughs> I think it, there's a very good argument to be made that this is a torture porn movie. She's on the cover with a drill, if that gives you any indication of the type of horror that you're going to get. But keep in mind, we generally really do not like torture porn. And 
we both have seen this movie years ago and really enjoyed it. Because how often do you get a torture porn movie where it's a girl? Now, I'm not trying to be like, feminist women yeah. can torture people too. <laughs> women can be villains too. Uh, that's not the point, but I mean, it's different. It is not at all what I was used to, what I would have expected, and... You guys know that I love teen drama slashers from the yes, 80s. Uh-huh. Like, this is very that. much yep. a teen drama. Like, it's got this quality to it. And uh, and it's just very, very different. Now, I'm not trying to say that there are no movies where women torture men. I am aware of the one with Keanu Reeves, which I just recently found out is actually a remake uh, from a movie that they made in the 70s. There's... There's Audition as well. Yes, of course, Audition. Uh, But... So the Keanu movie is called Knock Knock, which is a remake of Death Game from 77. So I am aware that these movies do exist. And of course, there are plenty of movies where there are female villains. But I just thought that this one would... Like it captured something, I guess. Yeah, it just... There is this very dark humor to it. And it's got that kind of Heathers, and I love Heathers. It's kind of got that quality to it. And also, it did not end the way I was expecting it to. I don't remember how it ended, and I'm totally fine with that. I love that about me. Sometimes I just, things just fall out of my brain like that. I I love the ending. But I think it will be hard for me to watch it a second time because I know what's coming. And I'm not looking forward to certain scenes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, but I mean, I think now that I've seen it, like that drill scene <sighs> that the you know the that the poster is referencing, is not like the worst thing in the world. I thought it was going to be way worse than it actually was, but now I'm thinking about it, and ah, uh, ah. Uh, but <laughs> but the movie is that good that we really enjoyed it, and that was when we were watching it casually. Yes, you know. So like now that we're watching it for the show, I'm I'm going to be interested to go back watch it again. Remind myself of everything that happens and think about it maybe a little bit more critically to get to the bottom of why we liked it so much. But yeah, so Razorback and The Loved Ones. I like, you know, The Loved Ones was one of those movies that we would have recommended to people. Mm-hmm. With caveats, but yes. yes. Like, hey, if you like if you like torture porn. Oh my God, if you like torture porn, Hey, you should this. watch The Loved Ones. If you don't like torture porn, hey, you should watch The Loved Ones. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's... It works in both ways. Mm-hmm. That is next week. Until then, you can find us at our website, podcemetery.com. Follow us on Twitter at Pod Cemetery and subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. Rate and review. A five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us there. Even bigger than that is sharing us with your friends. And even bigger than that is listening in the GD first place. We love each and every one of you. Thank you very, very much for listening. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? I can't believe we said no to free beer. Dropkick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. End over in neither left nor to right. Straight through the heart of them righteous uprights. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. Make me, oh, make me, Lord, more than I am. 
Make me a piece in your master game plan Free from the earthly tempestion below I've got the will, Lord, if you got the dough Tremors reinvigorates its, reinvigorates its genre Fucking, this is hard to say Which they've since modified the rules And two will get you a straight F Unless you get you mean you, R? Two will get you a straight R But they both need to be non-sexual fucks Damn it Damn it, Dale. Australia, Australia, Australia. We love you. Raise Amen. You Have we done any Australian horror? I don't know. Did we do? No, we didn't. If we saw that, though, that Australian movie where they go out and... The Outback. The Outback and kill kangaroos and shit. Yeah, that was a weird movie. Yeah. I think that's super famous, though. Yeah. Which is why we saw it and then we didn't really like it. I'm sure we have. Cut! The one with Molly Ringwald. Isn't that in Australia? Yeah, I think so. But, or are oh, they Lake in Mungo. Zealand? Lake Mungo. The Babadook. Oh, those are all Australia. The Babadook's Australian? Yes. I wonder what I thought she was. I don't know. There's like this moment when I go into this ending mode until next week, you know, or even before that. That's next week. Until then, you can find us at our website, Pot Cemetery, blah, 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 where... Like, you just see this moment on Kelsey's face where she's just like, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> I don't have anything. I don't have any last words. I just love that. It's also that you get a similar sort of thing. I'd say maybe like a quarter of the time when I ask what we're watching next week. <laughs> she's planned it all out and everything. It's just uh, she doesn't have it in front of her. This whole valley's just one long smorgasbord. <laughs> They're under the ground. They're under the ground. <laughs> oh, I missed the first rock, paper, scissors. Damn it. You know what we don't talk about the entire time? Mm. I don't think. Pardon my French. Which is used several times throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah it's like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll.